1: Brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl
0: Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast Stories Behind the Story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Anna Kent, welcome to Better Reading. Oh, thanks so much for having me. You are such a remarkable person. I mean, I was just, oh, I'm just in awe and I can't, I, I'm very excited to speak with you today. I'll introduce you. Anna is a humanitarian aid worker. Uh, she's also an NHS nurse and midwife, NHS being the na- national health system, I gather, in the UK. After studying nursing in Not- Nottingham, she joined Doctors Without Borders, which is Medicine Sans francaise Is that how you pronounce it? Um,
2: I say "Medicine Sans Frontier," but oh, I also didn't, didn't. I didn't study
3: French, unfortunately. <laughs> so. You're probably right.
0: Um, She has worked as a midwife around the world, including in South Sudan, Haiti, Bangladesh, and the UK. She's written a memoir. It's called Frontline Midwife. Extraordinary. It's a gripping account of her experiences as a midwife in some of the most challenging circumstances. I mean, you know, there was a point where I'm like, what the hell are you doing? (sighs)
2: Oh, yes, me too. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> I guess from from the start, I did want to do humanitarian aid. Yeah, that was always the,
0: that was. Always from the family. start of you mm-hmm. studying nursing?
2: Yeah, you know, it, it definitely drove me um, to want to train to be a nurse. And, I, and actually, I do think it started a little earlier when, although when we're five or six years old, we don't have necessarily a world perspective. I can remember being, it was the first time in the late 80s that um, starvation in Ethiopia had been shown on TV and it it inspired live aid and I think for me in a very childish way as you know as we all should you know starvation seemed completely unbelievable how can people die because they don't have enough food and got more than enough for everybody although at that age I wouldn't like to claim that I knew exactly my life's path I definitely felt stirred to want to help in some form. And that only got stronger the next time we saw a tsunami on TV, the next time we saw an outbreak of war, the next time we saw cholera. Um, As I grew up, I felt more and more moved and determined to help. So I specifically did my nurse training with the idea of doing international humanitarian aid work, I I guess essentially I wanted to be useful in it. Yeah.
3: um, One
0: of the things that always makes me cry when I read stories, like, you know, even the Ukraine recently, is when women are in hospital giving birth and there's an atrocity because you can't put that off. You know, that yeah. seems to me that it's it's kind of the, one of the cruelest things you see. Isn't that right? Because yeah. everybody yeah. is entitled to give to a safe birth, aren't they?
2: Absolutely. And, you know, for a baby that's harmed by war, in its mother's arms in a hospital are the two places it absolutely mm-hmm. should be safe. Mm. Um you know, one of my core beliefs, which is why I chose because there's lots of international organizations, but I chose NSF specifically because it absolutely reflected my personal opinion that everybody deserves access to healthcare, and that's regardless mm. of you know where they happen to have been born or their religion or politics or all the factors external that many of us don't have any power or say over. Mm. Um I absolutely believe that everybody deserves access to quality medical care and, and you know MSF Dots Without Borders still delivers that in over 70 countries in the world. So so absolutely I wanted to sign up with them. And I was I was thrilled actually. It's quite competitive to get into. So when I was selected by them, I was I was over the moon. Yeah.
0: Tell me how you got there,
2: what that process was I, like. I yeah I chose to do an I did an undergraduate masters in nursing which was the mix of the academic study plus the practical side of nursing. And I've always loved nursing. I think I love to connect with people and nursing definitely gives you an avenue into that because you're sharing some really intimate spaces and, you know, you're invited into that realm, which is an absolute privilege. I then did three years as an emergency nurse. We called it A&E then, but we now call it the ED, which was in Nottingham. So at Nottingham at that point um it's had it's, its difficult times nottingham's a brilliant city but i think we were averaging you know a gunshot wound every eight days and a stabbing every five days and i coordinated a major trauma center which was 12 recess beds and we were the we were the fallout for major incidents in that area but i loved it again i think you know we know that dreadful things happen in the world and to be able to hopefully do something positive within that and and even if it's Giving the bad news to people, I think if you can give it in a way that's sensitive and, and in a way that absolves people of unnecessary burden afterwards or unnecessary guilt, I think it's um, it's a, again I've used the word privileged already, but it's a, it's a, it's a space that I um, I was really grateful to have a chance to be helpful in.
0: I think that um, you know, and this is just my experience um, in. Sydney, Australia, I feel that nurses um, are undervalued um, in, in the healthcare system. I feel that nurses in nursing care are even more undervalued. And my mother died recently in a, in a nursing home and yeah. the level of care she got was extraordinary, you know, by registered nurses, RNs, as well as the people that work there. And that experience is so important. Like here you are with nurses that are helping you and helping your mother transition. It's extraordinary. It's, it's so special. I mean, you've seen it. But for me, it was a one-off really. It was the first time we had had that experience. And I just couldn't help being grateful every moment of it. It shouldn't matter what stage
2: of life and it shouldn't matter where you live and it shouldn't matter. No. Like, everybody deserves to be cared for with quality care, but also with dignity.
0: Absolutely. And that's important
2: whether it's childbirth, it's important whether it's end of life care.
0: Yeah. One of the things with my mum, she was in a room that had a really large window, lovely room and had a large window and you couldn't see in, it was a kind of into a garden that had no access. But do you know, every time those nurses walked in to tend to her, they would close those curtains and I just thought that was just such a beautiful act of dignity you
2: know none of us would like to have yes. personal care with the window open up and that sense especially when you're very vulnerable yeah um, you know for the people that I worked with overseas if you then add a difference in language if you add a difference in yes. culture if you add a million things whether you're in the war zone or a refugee camp you know that core dignified quality care you know is is essential for everybody absolutely
0: yeah so tell me then so you finished and you've decided you've worked a little bit at at Nottingham Hospital in emergency and now you want to go overseas tell me about that process
2: yeah so I was really fortunate a friend of mine was a teacher in Zambia so I um I was able to arrange um a work experience essentially in a Zambian hospital, which helped me understand that there is a gap sometimes in aid work. in the hospital that I worked at, um, a UK charity had donated an x-ray machine, which is so generous and it's wonderful. But at that point in Zambia, there was, in, there was issues with the electricity. You could draw from the national grid and there was limits and there was power cuts. So this x-ray machine had basically stood gathering dust in the hospital um, in Kasempa, without being able to be used. So it just seemed, it really highlighted to me that you can have all the best intentions in the world, but unless your aid is thought through and mindful and comprehensive, then actually it's a, it can also be a waste. And so it, it highlighted, you know, the gaps in my knowledge. So I studied in London. I did a, an amazing tropical medicine course, which happened to be managed by Claire, Dame Claire Birchinger, who was the original nurse in Ethiopia that had helped inspire life aid, so it was a wonderful sort of circle of life moment. And it was a brilliant course because it was it was guided to um, any health professionals that aren't doctors, and we learnt about like the practical things, like malaria or schistosomiasis and the diseases of the tropics and leprosy and Ebola. But then we also learned about health structures and tertiary care and primary care and how to give mindful, insightful, helpful care so that, especially when you work for a charity, you want the money that's donated to go to the beneficiaries that it's aimed for. You don't want it wasted on, you know, an x-ray machine that isn't able to be plugged in. Um, So I'd studied in London I got my diploma in tropical medicine and then I after the three years practical work and the extra qualifications and the work experiences at that point I could apply for MSF.
0: I want to know what your first reaction was to working in Zambia was it a cultural shock? It was
2: so I'd um, with a friend I'd climbed Mount Kilimanjaro to raise money for charity and um, I'm lucky because Nottingham's quite a diverse city, not all areas of the u k are, but Nottingham's quite diverse. so I was used to working with international teams. More of the shock was you cannot understand absolute poverty until you've experienced it because we you know we do have poverty. I mean there's been times in my life where I've been really stretched, especially because the overseas work was voluntary. And I've had an expensive divorce, but that's another story. (laughs) Um, That's another book. (laughs) That's that's another book. I I think to see people suffering in such absolute ways, but then Mm -hmm. also be very positive and very cheerful was quite, that was a culture shock to me. And one of those, you know, wake up calls to me, like the things I complain about, are they really worth complaining about? The things that I want to, you know, want to do with my life is that, You know, I guess it it helped consolidate. I wanted my life to have some sort of meaning. But then, you know, we have to acknowledge as well, you know, I am a privileged white woman. I came from a place of education and my parents both were good earners. So I think... One of the things I've learned to explore as an adult is that sense of white privilege. And can I swoop into somebody else's country and culture and essentially save the day, which absolutely I cannot. But at that age, I was you know, 24, 25, and I think my world perspective was still extremely naive. Um, and I joined MSF, if I'm honest, and I absolutely cringe to admit it. But I joined MSF probably thinking I could make some massive, startling, positive Difference, which of course, looking back, not one person has the power to. And it's taken a lot of growing up on my part to acknowledge that yes, you can make a positive difference, but unless people are empowered to make the difference themselves, it's only ever going to be Mm. temporary. Mm. Um, I think what I learned the positive in Zambia absolutely is how much you can do with very little. Mm. It doesn't always take massive infrastructure to make a really positive difference to people. And I think. I found it difficult to come back to the NHS, the National Health Service here, and witness then, you know, the wastage and the, the all the things that we could achieve, but we don't quite achieve it, even though we've got kind of all the building blocks to do so. So, yeah, it was, I mean, there's a massive mind expansion in, in many ways, but we we've always all of us got to recognise that it is lifelong learning, whatever mm. routes we take, and to let the ego disappear and just work out how to be practically helpful. Mm.
0: So then you get your apply uh, to Doctors Without Borders and you get in. Yes. Mm. After
2: a, train, a, a two-week training course in Germany where at one point I thought we are on a treasure hunt and actually we got separated, blindfolded, interrogated. By people that smelled alcohol and spoke a language I didn't understand. And I kind of knew it was probably part of the training but we'd spent hours basically in a like a treasure hunt and I hadn't wanted to let go of the, the treasure that we'd been finding so it, that was it was part of our training for hijacking and hostage taking. Basically if you've got treasure just give it away um so yeah it was it was a two-week training course it was quite intense and not everybody made it through that um it's called pre-departure training PPD. And in
0: what way do people don't make it? Um, I think
2: so you're, you're, it's basically in hindsight, like an ongoing interview. So you can have, you can interview for an hour for a job. You can have the best CV in the world. But if you're doing group work and you're arrogant and you won't listen and you don't take instruction and you're not open to changing your mind and working flexibly, then it, you know, when you work with MSF, you're often really isolated I was in a group team of two in South Sudan. You might be in a team of two. You might be in a team of six, but it's really small teams. And if it only takes one person to be, I guess, toxic within that small mm. group, and the whole project can collapse. So, so some people didn't make it through. Yeah, essentially, if they they couldn't work in in teams, and I think again, the idea of working dots up borders can probably be quite. I don't know. Is it? quite a romantic, you know, you're going off into the desert with the hair and you're the winding, you, you know, it could be like maybe a nicer idea, more pleasant idea than the actual reality. So I think maybe that training course also highlights people if it isn't, mm. maybe they also choose not to, mm. not to go through.
0: Mm. So where was your first post?
2: I, my first post I opted because I don't have um, other languages, sadly.
0: So I had to work in a country
2: where people who had been educated in the national staff also spoke English. There's different MSF operational centres across the world, but I was joined with MSF Holland and then worked, I took a year posting in South Sudan, which at that point was called Sudan. It was before, because this was in 2007, so it was before South Sudan was um, officially recognised as a country. But I'll use South Sudan because it, it makes it slightly easier for uh, information sharing. And South Sudan at that point had had 50 years on and off of civil war Hmm. and the infrastructure terrible
0: violence
2: violence and uh, kids being kidnapped Mm -hmm. kids soldiers boys boys joining what ended up being the lost boys generation hundreds of thousands of internally displaced people also refugees Mm -hmm. from other surrounding countries with, with complications um add to that, on the day I landed, it was 50 degrees centigrade, which is really mm. hot. Especially. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think, <laughs> yeah. I think today might pop about 28 and I'm already, you know, <laughs> and, you know, I was working in a clinic. We were the only health facility in an area the size of Belgium. And it was myself and one of the nurses, the international team, and we had 10 um, amazing um, Sudanese uh, national staff. But because of the 50 years of civil war, most of them hadn't had the privilege of any formal education. And so obviously we were working with um, a variety of needs within the national staff as well. And add to that the complications of war. There was um, millions of landmines, but also black mambas and red cobras, diseases of the tropics and malaria and another. So, it was, yeah, a really complicated context, very unstable because it was the time leading up to the independence of South Sudan. So there's a lot of troop movements Um, and people lived in really basic accommodation. So it was, if you imagine just looking every angle around you, turn 360 degrees and it was completely flat, unbroken in every direction, no trees, no scrub. Um, And then people amazingly could make these tuckles, these mud homes, which was mud around the walls with sticks and then a thatched um, cylindrical ceiling um, roof. yeah, amazing that people can survive in such hostility, but people didn't. You know, people you know, people in South Sudan, the Noir tribe I worked with, they want what we want.
3: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code Listen to get fifty dollars off your purchase of five hundred dollars or more. That's code Listen at bluenile.com for fifty dollars off. bluenile.com code Listen. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Do you know, I've um,
0: spoken to so many, a, a few South Sudanese, because a lot of them um, have come to Australia and Sydney in particular is refugees, you know, and have written their memoirs. But when I speak to them, it, you know, it's almost unfathomable when they say to me, yes, and, and I had to get to the refugee camp and it took 28 days. And I say, mm-hmm. how? I mean, what was the method of transport? And I they walked. walked for nine days and later. Or like, have your waters gone? Are you getting stronger? Are they in your
2: back? Are they, you know, in the front? All this. And then you make the decision. Can I birth at home without a trained care provider because you know 50 years of war all the infrastructure was mm. broken the hospitals were gone the nurses were gone there weren't any midwives there was estimated one midwife for the whole country that was Sudanese at that point point. one estimate it's quite hard with the data because it does vary but somewhere between one in eight and one in 80 women died of childbirth
0: mm. in South Sudan.
2: And there was a local saying that women have one foot in the grave so can you imagine being that woman in early labour Thinking, you know, do I labour at home without assistance and hope everything will be all right? Or do I walk across landmine fields, across swamps, past, you know, the Nile crocodile, past snakes, and in an area of civil war to get to what the hospital that I hope is still open and I've heard about, but I've never actually been to. You know, that's Mm. you've got impossible. There's no good choice in there, is there? Mm. Each choice is risk. And it's so people would tend to come to us with labour complications, when things had already gone wrong. That was the difficulty. Um, and I wasn't a trained midwife by this point. So in the UK, our education structure is that you're either a nurse or a midwife or both. And I, I'd had some informal work experience in maternity units, but I wasn't, I wasn't a trained midwife. And then on one of my first nights, I was working with James. So he was a 62-year-old American Buddhist that used to be a Hells Angel, heroin addict, Alcoholic who'd been in prison for marijuana possession. he does had this crazy, crazy wonderful life. And when I first saw him with this handlebar moustache and his cowboy hat, I just thought, what? <laughs> <laughs> like it's literally the two of us in the middle of nowhere. I was like, what was NSF happening? And he's actually you now one of my best friends. He's, he's brilliant. He's brilliant to tell the story. On that first night, a lady had come in and she had birthed her baby. And but the placenta hadn't been born. So she walked to us. And I said to James, you know, I'm, I'm not a midwife. And he was like, well, I don't do women's health, so it's kind of up to you. So I literally put my head torch on and had my MSF guide, like obstetric guide, and put on my gloves and and mm. and helped the birth placenta and, you know, thank the universe. Everything was completely fine. But it, women are at such risk with birth. A placenta at term can have 800 mils of blood through it a minute. You know, we're talking mm. things that either completely okay or completely not okay um knowing full well literally her life was in her hands and I felt really unprepared and it was it was a, a massive again like this is a series of of naivety wake-up calls but I I made a commitment you know we were just staying in tents and I with my head torch in my diary I just I made a commitment to to train to be a midwife because I knew if I was to do continue to do aid work it's an absolutely essential skill yeah, we had another story from there. We had a lady that came in, and she clearly had twins. I, we didn't have any scans, we didn't have her in water, we didn't have blood tests, um, but we did have our hands. And we had stethoscopes and we had basic drugs. So it was clear there was there was twins in there. There were so many legs moving. And then after the second baby was born, I felt back onto her tummy, and it was still moving. I was like, mm, "It's triplets." <laughs> so she had two boys. First came head first. The second boy came after first breach and then as a surprise to all of us her her third baby a little girl was born then head first and she needed some resuscitation she was born really pale and floppy and she weighed less than a kilogram so she needed some basic resuscitation which we had like bag and mask and and basic things and she started to breathe and cry just wonderful um and they called her Nyakawai which essentially means like, white woman or foreign woman. So I hope, um, (laughs) let us all pray that, you know, 14 years later, Nyakawai is surviving the war. zone. Mm. she breastfed too,
0: and then her sister breastfed. Mm. What's the chance of having triplets naturally? Like... Yeah, oh, that's a good question. I should probably know that. Shouldn't no, be. but I would say it's very rare.
2: Factors. Yeah, there are, there are fact, different factors involved. So one is the conception to begin with. There so was like- two boys and girls, so there must have been at least two eggs there. So that's one factor from the conception. Then surviving the triplets in a war zone to term. Well, she was probably preterm, and then to survive birth. Sadly, she she did have a big bleed, and we couldn't birth her placenta. So we we got her to the MSF surgical facility, and she had a complete hysterectomy. At sixteen years old, her name was Grace. Um, I've always wondered what life was like for her, unable to yeah. bear more children. Um, women have a really low social status often in South Sudan. Sometimes men could have as many wives as they could afford and as many children as God would grant them, but none of that narrative says is this safe or healthy for the
0: women. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, yeah, I've often wondered what's become of them, and of- obviously I've got no way. To-
0: I feel oh, yeah. that, um, you know, nursing is is so rewarding, but so difficult on all levels. But midwifery in particular, I'd imagine, in a war zone, there's a conflict. You're giving life, you know, you're helping babies be born and yet you yeah. don't know the future. That's It's yeah, difficult, it's, isn't it? It's, just, it's So all humanitarian aid,
2: one of the other tough lessons I really had to learn, it's... To me, it feels like two sides of a coin. Yeah, the one side of the coin is the mandate to save lives. Absolutely. Yeah, that is, that's all our reason to be there is to preserve life, to preserve dignity, to save lives. That's why all of us were there. We all, everybody for MSF has left everything they've ever known to go to a country they've probably mm. never been in, to work with people they've never met before, with that shared mandate of, of helping, of, of and preserving.
0: Really life. difficult working conditions.
2: Absolutely, but the other yeah. side of the coin is that, so for Grace and her triplets, she carried them on a little reed, in a reed basket on her head across the runway. Um, Our runway was just patted down mud, but as you know, we waved her off. They made me a little belly teak, which is in South Sudan, women wear them. Um, I've got it here with me. Women wear them basically as a form. When you don't have anything else, you you need to invoke the spirits or whatever you feel to give you some sense of strength. Um, And they gave me a a belly teak as as a thank you. You know, I waved her off to the war zone, so, you know, did she yeah. step in a landmine on her way home? Did yeah. What was the drought like the next year? That The political situation in South Sudan only ever gets worse. I often think of them. But I have no power at all in the overall health mm. of mm. And, and safety of South Sudan. I don't. I work for an organisation that does have a good political voice and will always speak up for the vulnerable people. But it's it's a really tough two sides of a coin because it's, you patch up in the moment, but then you have to say goodbye. And I don't mm. know that anybody can ever get used to that. I don't mm. I don't think, I think it, it breaks you a little bit every time. So then you you toughen up and you try not to think about it and you bury it down. But what I found after my year in South Sudan, I then came back and trained to be a midwife. And I got my first degree midwifery, which I was really proud of. And then I did other missions for MSF, but I did find over time that the more you try and bury it down inside, actually that trauma does, find a way out. Hmm. Um, Ideally, it has a healthy, constructive way out. But for for me, I think I had to push myself to quite a difficult place before I did learn how to deal with it properly.
0: Hmm because it's you know it's living and breathing it day in day out my parents are Lebanese and they fled war uh, back in the 50s searching for a better life for their children and we were lucky and we got that but i've still got cousins my age there and it's a tough life you know at the moment i mean you know what's happening over there but what i am always astounded at and you would have seen this is how everybody really tries to live what we call a normal life you know all people want to do yeah. is Everybody wants li- the same stuff. Exactly. That's exactly what we want, right.
2: we need, we, need, we need security and we
0: need food.
2: And we need exactly. That's our and basics. You yeah. know, we want our children to
0: thrive. Exactly. You know, we want to laugh with our mates while we're doing, you know, mm. our chores. You know, it's mm. everybody, and, you know, everybody's the same. Absolutely. We'll yeah, when that work. bomb went went off in Beirut, you know, I saw a few, maybe it was a couple of months later, I saw on Instagram my cousin had a birthday party for her daughter. And I mean, it sometimes shocks me, but then I think, well, of course, of course, that's all people want to do is just live yeah. your life. And we want to make it
2: okay for our kids, right? You know, of course, to, it's those really brave steps that people take yeah. to to make it okay for the kids. What I found with sort of my experience of sort of almost like vicariously, but I was experiencing trauma. But what is my trauma compared, you know, to the woman mm. that's walked the nine days? to the guy that's lost his leg on the landmine, to the kid to whose mother has died. You know, what is my trauma compared to other people's? So again, that minimalises our sense of experience because you, there's no comparison. There's no comparison to giving birth in the war zone. You know, there isn't, there's there's no more vulnerable people than birthing women, birthing people. Um, add to that all the other factors in the low mm. social status of the war, etc. cetera, but... I think I I did learn that you do have to acknowledge your own suffering because you know it's it's a cliche I know but you can't pour for an empty cup. I I absolutely agree mm. with that. If um if we all push ourselves and don't recognise our own suffering, then we do end up not well as well mm. in our own right, and then we're not useful to the people mm. we want to be serving.
0: So it's and you it's- don't sacrifice one life for another. That's not how it works. Uh, you've got to look after I have
2: yourself. Twenty a, six a year old in South Sudan, I, I would have. I don't know. I think maybe I would have accepted it. I don't accept it now because I'm a single mum and like with all the COVID stuff, you know, I don't, I don't accept that for me now. But I think there was maybe an altruistic side of me that thought this is worth the risk. Not that I didn't have any like intentions to actually to die, but you know, there's there are risks involved. Uh, We know that when we lose our MSF colleagues, but for me. As a, I had I had less to lose there, I guess, and I had all my naivety spurring me on. Mm, mm, mm.
0: That's what youth gives you, I guess. So, talk to me about the challenges of coming back and living in England. What was that like
2: after South Sudan? I did more missions, but after South Sudan, I hadn't left anything reserved for coming home. Mm. Um, I had given everything to my year. I really had. I'd like my periods had stopped, and I had no libido, and I. I'd had a messy breakup with a brilliant ex and um, like I'd had this like fungal rash on my chest, which didn't really bother me. And I, I was grinding my teeth and I had night sweats and I had nightmares. And, but none of that really factors as being a problem because again, what's, you know, as I said, what's my suffering when somebody else clearly has, you now I'm clearly the lucky one. What I found was for my friends and family at home, absolutely rightly, their lives have gone on, you know, my friends mm. have got, promotions and they're buying houses you know we're late 20s by this point somewhere getting married and having kids and life had carried on without me which of course it should but these people so James my colleague in in South Sudan we'd had this intense year where we shared everything you know I could I could hear where if he burped in his tent you know we we were in one man tents each next to each other for a year completely dependent on each other and you know I, I loved him as a friend and as a thankfully he's he's, uh, he's now a he works specialized in end-of-life care in oregon in america
0: oh well wow. you know
2: he flew to america i flew to the uk so you don't have the people that you'd shared this intense time with and nobody at home and it's not it's not their fault but nobody i don't think can really understand mm-hmm. because people would say like how' was your year and i'd maybe have a little like a little um like sound sound bite i could out and maybe you know if I was with a friend in a pub we're having a pint you know but how long can you talk for you can talk for five minutes you can talk for 15 minutes and but then it gets weird right if I was talking at somebody for the next half an hour that it's it doesn't work it monopolizes and so it, it, I found it if I'm honest I found it really lonely because mm-hmm. I had these big intense things but I didn't know a forum for sharing it. And I've learned since MSF has some brilliant like expat groups or international staff groups. And looking back, I did have symptoms of PTSD that I was thoroughly ignoring purposefully. Mm. Um, Could it be the night night sweats? (laughs) Well, the night sweats, and I was having really invasive dreams. And, Mm. you know, those sorts of dreams where you're not sure if you're awake or you're asleep, but it was always. It was always a maternity emergency and it, I was always failing mm. because we did lose people. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, we, in our little humble clinic, in our town clinic in South Sudan, we saw over a thousand people a month um, between me and James and the 10 national staff. I can't tell you any of their names, but I can tell you the 10 people that died there. I can mm. tell you the name of their sister. I can tell you which village they lived in. And trauma has this pernicious way of, I can remember every single moment of those extreme events when we lost patients. Um, and I didn't know what to do with all those thoughts because also, you know, people don't always want to hear all of it. And so I buried it deeper and actually I, I live with my parents and I sort of, I'd gone from being, you know, the only health profession in this massive area to suddenly I'm like this this teenage child living with my parents, like morose and like, oh, mum, <laughs> <Like, laughs> darling, would you like some dinner? No, I'm all right. And so, and so that flick in the sense of identity the only healthcare provider which is such responsibility you I know mean, even you know as a, i've been a nurse now for 20 years that's still unbelievable responsibility as a as a 20 something year old to then being this woman child was also a really big impact on my sense of self which is really mm-hmm. difficult i kind of pulled myself together and i started sleeping a bit better and i i had a new idea that next time i go with them i'm going to make it better i'm going to do more i'm going to save more lives And so I trained to be a midwife and I got a first, which was, I was really thrilled with. And then very quickly went to Haiti um, after the earthquake. And then I was just part of the E team with the cholera outbreak. So I was only there a couple of months and I came home for a week. And then I then went back for another year in Bangladesh. So I in the refugee camp for stateless Rohingya people that have fled persecution in Mm. Myanmar. I was overall responsible in a refugee camp of 30,000 people. I was overall responsible for all female and pregnancy health, which again, from this context, mm. from the out looking in, that's great. You know, that's, that's such enormous responsibility. And thank our Bangladeshi staff were phenomenal. So well-trained, so dedicated, so absolutely brilliant. But even so, that's still a very complex context. It is so obvious looking back but I was like this time I'm going to do more and I'm going to you know I wanted to build a birth unit from scratch and I did it and I trained midwives we whilst I was there it's probably it was it was quite tough because anytime we increased our services it risked being um excluded from the context because of the politics which were Mm. which were complicated but I felt unless we had 24 access to a safe birth unit I wasn't serving the women Properly. So we took the risk. We built it from bamboo. Not me. I didn't build the bamboo, but I ordered it on a truck. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. And I um, trained, Bangladesh then didn't recognize midwives they do now. So I trained 15 nurses to be midwives. And that birth unit still runs now. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Yeah. At least 100 safe births a month. So, you know, which I can recognize is an achievement, absolutely. But I can name the people I didn't save. So mm-hmm. I, I went, I was still going again and again and again with this expectation that next time I'll be better. Next time I won't fail someone because it's, you know, to feel you've failed somebody and mm-hmm. your decisions have ultimately not saved them is a really big, it's a really big burden to carry, but you mm-hmm. have to get up the next day and go back to work because there isn't anybody else to be there. And it was after Bangladesh, um, I'd been there a year that i came back to the uk and was working night a lot of night shifts just to make some money back as a midwife and i had some form of a mental health breakdown it to me it felt like a hallucination but it's it's clinically it's called a flashback but i was with a baby that was safe and well in the uk after a reasonably straightforward birth and just for a flash i could i could literally hear the monsoon rain in bangladesh I could Mm -hmm. smell the refugee camp, I could smell the wood fires, I could smell the latrines. I don't know, it lasted like a second, two seconds. It didn't last long and I, you know, I put all the safety measures in place and I got another midwife to come and care for the baby. But it really scared me Mm -hmm. to be be standing in two worlds simultaneously. It really scared me and I was partying quite hard at that time and through. I I wasn't making particularly great life choices as well. And just, I had, thank goodness, something in me flicked. My my self-preservation finally clicked, and I just thought, I can't do this. So I retired from MSF, and I moved into a Buddhist centre, which was...
0: What a, a contrast. Second, yeah.
2: Stopped drinking, stopped partying, and um, took... So MSF, um, who were brilliant, like in the, in the fallout for me, they paid for a really dedicated set of um, trauma-based CBT in my therapist specialized in military um, ptsds and she was fantastic so it you know i, I absolutely you know I'm, I'm genuinely healthier now than i've ever been despite the pressures from covid and working frontline and in that context and i'm really grateful that i got i fell apart absolutely thank goodness my self-preservation did kick in and also i then had a structured healthy way to then to get mm. well again
0: would you do it all over
2: again <laughs> um. I said no. I absolutely said when I retired. So I retired at 31. And I, but, I said never again. And now I've got a lone parent to a wonderful five-year-old, Aisha. So at, not at the moment. Some people are brilliant
0: in MSF and they somehow... they're. But if you had your time again, do you think you would have made the right, the same choices? Yeah.
2: yeah. I'm probably going to do it again. This is the thing. Maybe it's the road. <laughs> the idealist in this, that naive child that wants to help, you know, are they ever? Are they ever like I have thought when Aisha's 18... Um, I don't know if I'd go to war zones absolutely I don't want to put anybody else off doing it it there was a point in my life where I not everything's gone well but I am I always had good intentions and I'm proud of how I've chosen to spend my time whether it's I don't know fundraising in the UK so that other people can go and do the work whether it's frontline work we'll see but I've kind of thought when Aisha's 18 let's see what's ahead again yeah
0: I think now you've got to for all of all of you listening, you've got to go and get the book. It's called Frontline Midwife. Anna Kent, thank you so much for your time today.
2: Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: If you'd like more information about Better Eating, follow us on Facebook or visit bettereating.com.au.
1: This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
3: luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.